Hey, this is Sandy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase it all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome back to another episode of AT Corner. And for this episode, we have an awesome guest that we were really excited to talk to. And not only just a guest, but our first physician. Woo! Stepping up. You want to go ahead and introduce him? Absolutely. So we interviewed Dr. Chris Cateras. He is the team physician for Cal State Fullerton, my alma mater, and he is also the team physician for Chapman University Dance Department. My alma mater. Go Titans. Go Panthers. There we go. <laughs> he is also uh, he's also worked with Team USA Volleyball and American Ballet Theater Gillespie School of Dance. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Kinesiology from UCLA, uh, his medical school from University of Wisconsin, go Badgers. Uh, He did his pediatric residency at the University of Wisconsin and his sports medicine fellowship at UC San Diego. So currently, he's a pediatric and sports medicine specialist at Active Kid MD in Anaheim Hills. So let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Chris Gutierrez about his experience with concussions. Yeah, so... um... We really went nerdy with it. Instead of icebreakers, we went cryobreakers. I like that. I like that. <laughs> so we'll just get started. Uh, what made you become a physician? You know, I think I like the opportunity to work with people to integrate things. You integrate what you hear, what you see on your exam, the examinations you do in terms of labs and x-ray. You throw it all together, but more importantly, you get to work with people. and You understand the person who's coming in looking for help. Uh, being a physician means you get to teach and you get to work with a great group of people. You get to work with your colleagues, you get to work with families. And I think when you put it all together, it gave me a chance to be in the sports world. I love sports. I'm a terrible athlete, so I knew that was not going to be my avenue. So I decided if I couldn't be on the team, I'd be on the team behind the team. Nice. That's awesome. We really like that. You're our first physician on, so. Hopefully I don't scare everybody else away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next cryo breaker is... What is your medicine spirit animal? So this is anything like modality, rehab tool, anything in within the medicine realm that represents you. You know, I'm going to go old school and I'm going to call it a protractor. Yeah, I'm one of the guys who still carries a protractor because I like to measure things. I like to look at things and give kids and families numbers. So if you're looking at somebody's you know range of motion, their shoulder, if you can give them a number, and you can say, hey, I think we need more internal rotation. And they know that I've measured it out at 42 degrees. They know I can check it again, and it makes them accountable. So uh, it's also kind of interesting because my son is learning geometry, which means I'm relearning geometry. So mm-hmm. I'm learning all about complementary angles and alternate interior angles. So it's cool when I pull out my protractor because it harkens back to the old days, but still pretty relevant these days. And that family-oriented aspect, mm-hmm. too. Brings us all together. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. You want to do the last one? Yeah. So um, so on the show, we like to pair uh, evidence with experience. So if you don't mind sharing a story or an experience or a case study that you've had about concussions. You know, I'm going to go back to one of the first I ever had. I was covering high school football, Lafayette High School, Madison, Wisconsin, 1995. And our quarterback sneaks in near the goal line for a touchdown. I put the team ahead. Comes off the sideline. He's excited. Everybody's excited. He goes, hey, we just scored. Yeah, great. Who scored? Dougie, you did. No, 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 no. 
don't mess with me, man. It's my first <laughs> high school touch. I don't remember. I would remember it. Turns out he didn't remember. He did not get back to play. Uh, about a week later when he saw the film and kind of come to, he realized he had scored his first varsity touchdown. But it was really striking at the time how uh, everything else seemed okay, except he had no clue he had scored his first varsity touchdown. So it struck me to always be communicating with mm -hmm. kids, always be kind of asking the right questions and just protect the kids. So I remember that one like it was yesterday. Wow, that's interesting. That's crazy. I've had one concussion where they had very, very poor memory. And that one definitely stuck out to, to me the most because I had, that's something I had never seen before. It was something before I was even an athletic training student. So it was one of my first experiences with an injury that, that you know, affects your brain. That's a scary mm -hmm. thing. It is. And you know, they stick with you when they're early. In this case, you also had perseveration. He kept coming to going, who scored? Dougie, you did. No way. He'd walk away. 30 seconds later, who scored? And he tried wow. not to laugh. You don't want to blow the poor kid mm -hmm. because he truly did not remember. But that frontal lobe wasn't going to let him remember, at least until mm -hmm. later in the game. So you had to kind of keep your cool and just explain to him. He'd walk away and come back and just kind of repeat the process. Wow, that's good. That, I mean, that is just like yours, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not getting frustrated with that short-term repetition and mm -hmm. taking care of the patient. So why don't we start with our main questions? First thing we want to start with, basic. What is a concussion? That's not always the most basic <laughs> to define. Uh, you could probably look up a lot of different definitions. What I'll tell families is it's any damage to the brain that causes a change in the way how you act, how you think, and how you perceive things. You don't have to be knocked out. Heck, you don't even have to be hit to the head. There's a good evidence base. You get hit to the chest. You have that kind of whiplash injury. You can get the same kind of thing. So it's just anything that changes the way that you act, you think, or how you feel after some kind of blow to the body. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that definitely sums it up. Shoot. Um. So are there any symptoms or number of symptoms that predict the outcome of recovery, whether it's the length of time, the development of post-concussion syndrome? You know, it's a great question. We always like to look for those symptoms that we can predict to the family. It's going to be a short-termer versus a long-termer. I think if you have a higher aggregate number of symptoms that gets your attention, some have looked at that memory loss, the inability mm -hmm. to either remember things before the event or after the event, that could be concerning. Uh, I think if we're looking at higher grade headaches, sometimes those could be an issue. But I've mm -hmm. had, you know, cases where on the sideline, you know, the athlete's pretty poor off in terms of symptoms. And then come a few days later, they're doing pretty well. And the reverse, where on the field, it's kind of questionable if they really have any problems. And then two days later, they're not doing so well. Mm -hmm. So I wish we had better predictive either number of symptoms or intensity to be able to predict. Uh, we're still looking for that. Yeah, and I think that definitely shows how it's inner individual. You know, each person responds differently. No doubt. No doubt. Mm -hmm. So what role do pre-existing conditions such as like migraines, mental health concerns, et cetera, play in the recovery of a concussion? 
you know, I think concussions tend to draw out what you brought to the table. So if you've got a history of migraine headaches, good chance you're going to have some headaches afterwards. If you bring in a history of attention deficit or school issues, you're going to probably deal with those after the injury. If you've had a past history of concussion, the majority of time we're going to predict it's going to take longer and maybe have a more difficult recovery. Not always. So that's why we ask about visual issues, emotional issues, school issues, headaches, sleep issues, because most of the time, if they were there beforehand, they're going to be there afterwards. And sometimes there'll be a kid who will come in and say, I've never been diagnosed with attention issues, but back in fourth grade, my teacher was worried about me. We almost got looked at. I'll worry about that kid as well. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that you've changed to your management plan in that case? Like if it is someone who has a history of migraines and their migraines are getting worse because of the concussion or someone who's having more difficulties in school? You know, I think we're always aggressive with trying to make school modifications, try to address the headaches with different type of treatments. Uh, if I know that they were there beforehand, I might be even more apt to let the schools and the family know this might be here for a while. So if we're looking at a couple of weeks of modifications versus maybe looking at a more involved 504 or IEP individualized education plan. I might be pushing for those if I know the young person came in or as we look at a return to school, return to play, I might think, gee, this is somebody who I want to get my neuropsych colleagues involved and really get a good evaluation, not just to help the kid get over this injury, but for down the road, because it's probably going to be there. So how would the referral process change with this sort of um, patient who has pre-existing um, uh, conditions? Would you still work with your main physician and, and talk to the physician about getting, like you said, the neuro um, involvement or, or how would that work? You know, I think if you're dealing with this patient, you've got a history of past school issues, migraines, as the primary care doctor, if you're not as comfortable with concussion, you probably earlier want to engage a concussion specialist, your neurology specialist, your neuropsychologist, just because they'll take the pressure off you and it will help give that family a more comprehensive evaluation. Mm -hmm. If it's somebody who comes to you first concussion, you can be more comfortable as you're going to be with a concussion in terms of initial management without having to refer out. But if you've got somebody who brings other things to that equation, it's okay to look for help. But at the same time, you may know about that attention deficit issue. You might have a good relationship with the family. That's vital. And you can obviously add your experience as well. So by no means are we saying we don't want you part of that team. It's actually quite helpful to have your insight. It makes our job easier as well. And you see, it goes back to one of our episodes about mutual respect with within the different healthcare professions. Mm-hmm. They say the concussion might be the ultimate in team-based approach. Anybody mm. who tries to do this by themselves is only asking for more heartache on their part. So this is where, uh, if anything, we overwhelm our patients. We can send you to a lot of different folks. I'll even tell families at times, we're getting in the way of your recovery because we're telling you, you got, you got to miss school to go to appointments. You're not mm. getting as much time to get your homework done. So you got to let us know when we got to stop and slow down. Mm. But we also want to let you know the different options that are available to you. I really like that you added that balance in there of talking to the patient and making sure that they're on board with everything that we're doing. Because this is something that, you know, as as healthcare professionals, we're we go we're familiar with concussions and what to a patient, this is their first time mm -hmm. or sometimes their first time. It's true. And again, I've been guilty of overwhelming. Initially, people want kind of all the options. They want to hear there's different things. They won't say no because they're hoping for the one that gets them better all of a sudden. But when it looks like this is going to be a more prolonged recovery, they might say, gee, I've got three appointments. 
a week. That's a lot. Then I ask him, of those three, which is the most helpful? Well, you know, this week, I thought the physical therapist really did well for me. The other ones, not as much. Okay. With all due respect, let's hit physical therapy up for a week or two, see how you do. So I want to give them some control when they probably feel like there is no control. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. Um, Are there any pharmaceutical and or supplemental agents that may improve the outcome of a concussion? Uh, There are some things I like to use, and I'll always put the preface out that these I recommend only after I've seen the patient. So if people are listening, going, hey, I'm going to make a side trip to Mother's Market for certain things, please do talk with your medical professional before you start anything. With that being said, I do like vitamin B2, which is also known as riboflavin. I like butterburrs and herb. Those two things can help reduce headaches before they even start. Uh, I do like melatonin, inappropriate dosing to help with sleep. And I also do like fish oil. Omega-3, flaxseed oil also works for those who don't like or allergic to fish. So there are things I use, again, after I sit down with a patient, make sure it works as part of their plan. So definitely advocating for them only under appropriate supervision. How would an athletic trainer go about talking to a a physician about what kinds of supplements would be useful in the recovery process? You know, I think if they've had the chance to work with the athlete and with the physician, then you can sit down and go over the symptoms and you'll ask, do you feel like there's anything we could start on this athlete and get their impression? And they may say, I'd like to see the athlete first. Mm -hmm good working relationship. Maybe they know the family from a previous engagement. Then you could start some of the -the over-the-counter things. I think the real key is we want to bring symptoms down. We want to minimize side effects and we want to minimize the use of the ibuprofen Mm -hmm. or the naproxen or the uh, acetaminophen products because they work, but if you use them too much, the headaches keep rebounding back. Mm. So in your opinion, are there any like rehab techniques or exercises that may be applied to improve concussion outcomes? I think definitely, again, under the appropriate medical supervision, it can range from working on neck discomfort, suboccipital pain can definitely lead to concussion. We saw a visual tracking vestibular ocular where the eye movements and the balance aren't quite working too well. So we can incorporate certain eye exercises. Even simple things like riding a bike, walking, or shooting baskets can help with conditioning. Uh, you know, we, we take kids who are very active and often we've got to shut them down, which is no fun. On one hand, we don't want to overwhelm them, put them right back to sport when they're symptomatic, but we've learned that if we totally shut them down for too long, it can actually slow their recovery. So we're always trying to find that magic, uh, middle ground between too much and too little. But I think, you know, I like to look at active recovery. I, I like to tell families that, you know, the days to just sit back and get better. That's not what I subscribe to. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, that kind of leads into the into the next one as far as, you know, light physical activity has been discussed. What role does that play in concussion recovery? I think we're learning it's got more and more of a role. So again, after you've done your appropriate evaluation, after you've made a good assessment of the athlete, within the first week or two, we want them doing something. It doesn't mean they have to go out and set world records. They're not supposed to go out and exercise until symptoms put them on their knees. But We want them to do something where they're perhaps getting their heart rate up a bit. And there are different protocols that can be utilized to actually determine what is an appropriate heart rate, what range we want to get them in, what range of exertion can we use. That way they can help self-monitor their recovery and use symptoms, yes, as a guide, but not until symptoms are horrible, but maybe emergence of symptoms. That allows them to get some conditioning, some balance work, and hopefully help with their recovery. So would you use that symptom as a threshold, like, hey, their symptoms aren't getting worse, they're staying right at the, 
right at where they were. So would you still stay with the light physical activity? Yes. So if say that somebody's gotten a scale of zero to 10, a headache of three, we ask them to do their prescribed exercise. The headache is still a three. I'm comfortable with that. You know, even if it goes to a four, I might stick with it. Okay. If it's a seven, we got to talk. So this is where the athlete can help us. We can't always read minds. We'd love to, believe me. But if they can be honest with it, what they're feeling, it can help us help them more often than not. Awesome. And then are there any interventions uh, that you've seen that are effective in preventing concussions? You know, we're, we're still looking for mm. this. There are, you know, some things, for example, just don't put yourself at the higher risk positions in certain sports. So, for example, I'll go with soccer. Uh, there are some kids who are headers. They like to get in the air. They like to do the vertical challenge. That puts them at risk, not just the act of heading the ball, but just being vulnerable. Maybe those are kids that we put more on a wing position. In the sport of volleyball, which I do a lot of work with, we see too many concussions and hitting lines mm -hmm. because somebody went to grab a ball and got nailed. So we learn, hey, everybody hits in one direction. We stop. We go pick up the balls all together. We turn around. We start over again. So sometimes the behavior we do in terms of well, there's a lot of balls and a lot of people can reduce injury. There's some emerging evidence the neck that is stronger can reduce the risk of concussion. So neck strengthening work can help. Mm -hmm. uh, I still think the jury is not real settled on soft tissue helmets or regular helmets as a protective device above and beyond, like one's better than the other. Or would I ask every soccer player to wear a soft headband? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, this next question, Sandra was, loves this one. Yeah, we want to know about myths that you hear a lot and if there are any myths that you would like to dispel. Okay, number one, you don't got to be knocked out. Oh, <laughs> yes. he wasn't knocked out. Number two, the CT scan looked great. You don't have a concussion. Wrong. It meant that you don't have to go and see the neurosurgeon tonight. There's no bleed, no skull fracture, no movement in the brain. That says we've got to go and get rid of a bunch of fluid. So those are probably the two biggest myths. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing that can be done for concussion. That's, that's totally erroneous as well. Uh, most kids like to use their concussion symptoms to get out of school. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I think that's one of the biggest myths is kids take longer to heal is, well, they don't want to come back to sport. They're just using this to get out of school. I'm going to guess. In fact, professional experiences, this doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So like, those are probably the biggest myths I hear about that if we could dispel those, we're in a better spot. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then this one kind of came up. I just thought about it recently because I was just kind of thinking about how that conversation goes is at what point do you have that conversation with an athlete that like, hey, maybe you need to maybe not do your sport anymore or maybe change sports because of certain number of concussions or anything like that? You know, it's always individual discussion mm -hmm. and it's never easy. I mean, honestly, I've had it after one concussion. If it took a while to get better or more and more now, families are asking my opinion. Okay, my daughter just got her first concussion. We're not real comfortable with this. We don't think she should go back. So we start to engage in that mm -hmm. way. Is there an absolute number? I mean, it used to be three strikes, you're out. We don't use that number. Uh, but, you know, once you start talking more than one, mm -hmm. we start to discuss about risk benefits at a higher level. You know, we look at the position, the sport, uh, where this kid's going to take the sport. Are they looking to play high school, past high school? Uh, are they carrying any pre-existing issues like you mentioned earlier, the mm -hmm. attention deficit that could possibly 
cloud things. And if I'm getting into those tougher discussions, I'm not having them by myself. I'm using the athletic trainer. I'm using the family. I'm using my neuropsychology colleagues. So we're trying to do a team-based approach, not because I don't want to make the decision all by myself, but I think the family and the athlete deserve to hear other opinions that can help us with that decision. I think I'm sensing a theme here with actually two themes with one, the healthcare team approach, and also that each concussion is very mm-hmm. highly individualized. What have they said? If you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. They're very unique. <laughs> I like that. And uh, it can be both very exciting because it's like a new book you write every time. But it's also, you know, challenging because you feel like you're never quite able to go, okay, I've got this thing figured out. Mm-hmm. i got kind of a nice little protocol going here. Just when you think you got it, you're going to get one that really challenges mm-hmm. you. And you can be doing everything the same way you did. And uh, my classic is from Cal State Fullerton. We had two athletes who got concussed at the exact same moment. Accident happened, both hit heads. And I knew flat out one of them was going to get better fast than the other. I wasn't sure which one. And sure enough, one got better than the other. And the one that got better quicker, oh, she was a stud. She got better. The other one, what's wrong with her? Mm-hmm. We did nothing different. Mm-hmm. We did nothing, anything special for one versus the other. But it just, yeah, I use that example of, hey, same place, same time different recoveries. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've been, you know, uh, VNATA had a great session on this and they're talking about, uh, risk of musculoskeletal injury after a concussion. Um, is there anything the athletic trainer can do to prevent this risk when they're coming back? You know, we're hearing about possibly balance issues that we may not be able to identify in the office and the athletic training room because we just can't make them do the high level activity. We don't know if it's due to early level fatigue, neuromuscular instability. Uh, I think what we could do is perhaps with our return to play protocols, maybe going a little bit deeper on how they do with cutting, twisting, turning activities. You know, we ask them to go back to one contact practice and that may be great if we're trying to get them back for this week's game mm-hmm. and they've met every other criteria, but Maybe that's not enough to see what kind of fatigue element they have. Mm -hmm. And it could be that we need to uh, impress upon our athletes and coaches, hey, your first week or two back, you might fatigue quicker. No one wants to hear it, you know, when the athlete's clear, heck, if it's a top athlete, they want to be back Mm -hmm. yesterday. But we may be realizing that some element of fatigue, some element of continued neuromuscular stabilization needs to happen. Nice. I like that. Okay. Um, I know that this is something that we've heard a little bit about with in our own schooling, but mm-hmm. um, just can you touch a little bit upon about what post-concussion syndrome is? You know, it's just like the definition of concussion. Post-concussion syndrome or post-concussion constellation of symptoms. Some would say it's from the concussion forward because it's post-concussion. Others will kind of take that and wrap it into the athlete paradigm, someone who's not getting better six weeks out. If we argue loosely that most high school athletes show recovery within four to five weeks. So if we're kind of past that point, uh, I don't know if I'd use the word syndrome, but more you know, symptoms. The mm-hmm. headache's still persisting. They're still having focus issues in the classroom. Their balance is off. They're still uh, feeling sad. Those are things that we deal with. And... I'm not sure it changes our management per se, but it just may let us know, okay, if that athlete had a longer recovery from one concussion, the future ones may take just as long, if not longer. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think that's perfect. So one of the things that we like to do with everyone um, is find applicable knowledge. So 
obviously you've given us so many things to take away from today within this whole entire confession talk, but if you could kind of sum it up and give just a piece of what can an athletic trainer apply to their clinical practice from what we've heard from you today? You know, I think I really value the athletic trainer's relationship with the family, with the athlete. If they're embedded with the athlete, be it with a team or a school, they're not just going to get impressions on how the athlete's doing, but teammates and teachers and other folks might say, hey, you know, this person's really struggling in the classroom. They, you know, fell asleep halfway through, their academic work has gone down, and those are key things. Not that you're spying on them, not that you're trying to get knowledge behind their back, but you can add to the clinical picture by finding out, hey, what's really going on here? Because often when they come to visit me, I get my time with them, but let's be honest, often they're going to tell me what I want to hear. Mm -hmm. Oh, everything's great. I'm doing fine in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yet if I get that background, it lets me be a bit more able to appropriately address them. And then something I've learned that really I think helps is as you're looking to return an athlete to play, if you know the family, as we're getting close to return to competitive or let's say contact practice, you look the family in the eye, the parents, the caregivers, the guardians, and you say, is your son, your daughter, your cousin, your niece ready to go? Do you have any doubts? And I've done that with families. It's funny how everybody in the room go, oh, we're fine. No problem. Half hour later, my phone rings. It's one of the family members. You know, I really didn't want to say it in front of my athlete because I know she'd get really ticked at me, but I'm not ready to go yet. Thank you. We can hold off for some time. Five days later, okay, I feel a lot better. She's done better. I feel like we're ready to go. So putting a bit of the onus right back on those who know the family and the athlete well. And then again, the last big one, never, ever think you got to do this by yourself. They're tough enough, even with the best of a team, but there's no reason to just carry this burden by yourself. Share, learn, help yourself, help your athletes. Absolutely. And, and you saying that about like interacting with the family, it just reminds me like, I remember, you know, working with you on a few, pa with a few patients and you taking the pressure off of the athlete and saying like, Hey, we'll be the bad guys. If you don't feel oh, comfortable, yeah. we'll be the ones to say, Hey, you're not ready. Yeah. We can have a target on our back. We can have the coach call us names. We can have teammates throw darts at our pictures. That's perfectly fine. And once you hopefully take the pressure off the athlete and the family, you get a more forthright assessment. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, sweet. Thank you so much, Dr. Carries. We appreciate this. Well, I appreciate your time. And thank you for teaching me more about some of the new technology. This is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? This, I didn't know about all this stuff, too. <laughs> so that was an amazing conversation with uh, Dr. Gutierrez. And I loved how it went back to the theme of one of our older episodes was how you need to be a team and involve the healthcare team. And I think my favorite part is something that we didn't touch upon before is really involving the patient in that healthcare team. When you're working, you know, you can say like, Hey, I'm working with this physician. I'm working with this neuro. We're getting this patient to get all these appointments and see all these different people. But how is that making the patient feel? How are you making the patient get the best care? Absolutely. And it's funny because it goes back to what, Dr. Katera said why he wanted to become a physician. We're working with people. We want people to get better. So getting their input about what, you know, makes them feel better, you know, that, that should be key for us. So we hope that after listening to this, you can take some of these concussion techniques and bring them back into your own practice, especially when you're talking to a physician about some of those recovery. 
Yeah. You know, I know for me, like I get really kind of weirded out about talking to physicians because I'm like, oh, I don't want to sound dumb, but this could be something awesome to start that conversation and get some good ideas and get a nice little soundboard going. So before we let you guys go, we're just going to talk about a few upcoming episodes. So if you guys are new, we do every other. This was an education episode. So next episode is going to be telling stories. Some of our upcoming ones are going to be getting injured on the job. This is really ironic when the healthcare professional who's usually taking care of the injured is the one who's injured. So we can't hear, can't wait to share some of those stories. We're also looking forward to a Halloween episode. So we're going to be talking about superstitions that you guys have, full moon stories, maybe share some of your guys' creative Halloween costumes that you've had that are athletic training related. Anything Halloween. So... Being in athletics, you know everyone's got some kind of story of their own superstitions or the athlete superstitions. Those ones are real interesting. Yeah, so we want to hear it all. If you guys have anything about getting injured on the job or something you want to contribute to our Halloween episode, go ahead and email atcornerds at gmail.com. Yes, very nerdy. It's also in the show notes if you need spelling. I don't think it's that nerdy. What... What in there makes it seem nerdy? Hmm. <laughs> I can't put my nose on it. And then lastly, we're just going to plug our Facebook group again. We've been having some awesome conversations in our Facebook group, networking with listeners of the show, talking about case studies that you guys have brought up, question- answering your guys' questions, getting a group idea of maybe some things that you want to ask other athletic trainers so if you guys want to join that group, you totally can. It's facebook.com slash group slash podcast. There's only one question to get in. How did you hear about our podcast? That seems pretty easy. Yeah, and then you're automatically joined. You got anything else to add, Randy? Nope. Thank you for helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape. Bye.